Okay, so uh, this morning we're continuing our series uh, titled Grace uh, Changes Everything. Uh, Grace Changes Everything. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Paul's first letter uh, to the church in Corinth and how Paul's solution to all of the problems that exist within this church, which are many, um, is one of grace. He believes that they will only get back on track when they understand the grace of God through his son Jesus and through the reality of his death and resurrection for each one of us. Uh, and a few weeks back we looked at a definition of grace. We thought of how grace is the work of God as the grounds for all Christian existence. The only reason that we this morning can profess Jesus as Lord is because of grace, because of the work that we have done, because of the work that he has done in each one of our lives. Um, we are both undeserving and ill-deserving of God's grace, and yet he chooses to love us. He chooses to show mercy and compassion towards each one of us. Grace is such a powerful thing because it's not about performance. It's not about us doing lots of good things to make God happy. It's about freedom. We're free to live for God. We're free to experience his love and his mercy in every single situation of life. It's impossible to be a follower of Jesus and to not understand the reality of grace. And I really do hope that as we journey through this series, that more and more we come to terms with the reality of grace. It's impossible to be a follower of Jesus and to not understand grace. Uh, Paul writes about the importance of grace for the Christian in Ephesians 2 and verses 8 to 10. And it will be up on the screen for us. Uh, Paul says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. In other words, you can't make yourself a Christian. It's God who transforms us. It's God who changes us. And Paul continues, It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So this is grace. It is God's gift towards each one of us. And so if we have faith in Christ today, we do so on the foundation of this amazing gift towards us. There's a couple of indicators that demonstrate that you understand grace in your life. Uh, the first one is you're not hold on, holding on uh, to past sins or mistakes in your life. Uh, something that you did in the past uh, or something that happened to you, it's affecting you present day. You're looking back and you're holding on to that particular situation or that sin in your life. If you understand grace, then you understand that it's been completely dealt with. It's been cast into the sea of forgetfulness and you can move forward in joy and faith and in freedom. So you're not holding on to past sins in your life. And number two, you're willing to forgive other people for the hurt they cause. You know, those moments where you show grace towards someone else, or those moments that you don't show grace towards someone else, point towards your theology, your understanding of who God is. You know, how you drive your car tells you something of your understanding of grace. If you are friendly on the road and you're willing to show grace and mercy in different situations, I think Ramsey's looking at Johnny, <laughs> <laughs> then you're, you're demonstrating grace in your life. How you treat a waiter or a waitress, even when they mess up, even when they make mistakes, 
tells me something and tells you something of your understanding of grace. You know, if someone is serving you and they drop something on your table or drop a glass of water down your back and you respond to that, not with anger, but you show compassion and love, then that points to something bigger. You've grasped something of God's grace in your life. How you love and support your family again tells you something of your understanding of grace. If you're willing to support your family, to love your family, to forgive your family, then it's in light of this bigger picture of God's grace towards you. How you respond to those who hurt you tells you something of your understanding of grace. If someone causes you a lot of pain and difficulty, let's be honest this morning, it is very very easy for us to respond with aggression or just to get revenge in those situations. But if you understand the reality of God's grace, then through the power of his Holy Spirit, you will respond with grace and mercy to that person. You know, a life of grace is only ever possible when you carry this bigger vision of what God has done for you in your life. A helpful example of just carrying this bigger vision and how it affects your present day uh, is that of the janitor uh, who was working for NASA uh, in the 1960s. And when asked what he was doing, he replied, I'm putting man in the moon. So the janitor who was working in NASA, when asked what he was doing, said, I'm putting man in the, in the moon. He had this bigger vision of all that was going on. He wasn't just mopping some floors. He was part of something bigger. And so this bigger vision impacted for the good what it is that he was doing on the ground, literally. The bigger vision drove him to be the best, to be the best he could possibly be. So if you see the grace of God in your life, then you will live out a grace-filled life in all of the different situations and circumstances that God provides you day to day. And the Corinthians had forgotten this big picture of what God had done. And we know this because of the issues that arise uh, within this letter. Uh, most notably, the opening issue which is what we're looking at in our passage. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and uh, verses 10 through to 16. Uh, the words are going to be up on the screen. I'm reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. If you want a physical copy of a Bible, there's some up at the back shelf there. So Paul writes these words for us, and he's writing to the church in Corinth here, but God is speaking to us, and we have opportunity this morning to apply these truths to our life. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verses 10 through to 16, Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptised in my name. I did in fact baptise the household of Stephanus beyond that. I don't recall if I baptised anyone else. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word uh, this morning. And Tuesday morning, uh, I had the privilege of being at Easter House Baptist, um, meeting together 
with ministers within the East End of Glasgow. And we met for a couple of hours. Uh, the whole purpose uh, of our time together uh, was really to pray for each other, to pray for our churches, to pray for the communities that we are a part of, to really pray that God would do a work within the East End of the city. And it was great to see who God brought together uh, through this time we had. There was representation from Denison, from Parkhead, Shettleston, Sandy Hills, Easter House. And if I'm honest, I went into this meeting thinking to myself, you know, this is one extra meeting in my week. I really can't be bored going. There's just so much happening. I just don't have enough time to fit this in. It would be much better for me if I didn't have this right now. But as ministers, as we prayed together for this part of the city, as we were encouraged at what God is doing, as we believed God for more in these different areas, it was incredible just how God by his spirit was at work during that time together. And if I was to describe what was going on in that meeting, I would say there was this genuine, sincere, loving desire from within this group to pray for each other. And this desire was rooted in a love for each other as we heard what was happening within each of our churches. And as I was getting into my car, I thought to myself, I'm so glad I went to this meeting. Beforehand, I was like, I can't really be bothered going. And I left that meeting, getting into my car, thinking, praise God that I had that time with these ministers. Because God was really at work. We really sensed that God was doing something. You know, I think I would be confident in saying that all the churches that were there had a number of theological differences between them. But the incredible thing was we didn't let those differences get in the way. We chose to fix our eyes upon Jesus. We praised God for what he was doing in the city through our churches. We prayed that he would do even more. Our collective vision of God meant there was unity between us. And we let go of any differences we had. You know, I'm convinced the Spirit of God is at work when there is unity between brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's unity when we're all focused in the same thing, or we're all focused in the same person, that being Jesus himself. The writer to the Hebrews says it this way, in Hebrews 12, uh, in verses 1 to 2, we read these words, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So I hope we get this this morning. As we think of, of the importance of unity, it is really looking beyond what is seen and towards what is unseen, the reality of God in our lives. You know, if you carry that Hebrews 12 vision in your life, then you will work with others in Christ. And your desire will be to see people grow in their love for God and their knowledge of God. To see people step out in faith and to share the gospel with those that are lost. If you carry that Hebrews 12 vision, then you will overcome temptation. You will look at the bigger picture of what God has done for you. And this temptation to sin in a particular way will be destroyed, it will be removed. Because your eyes are firmly fixed on Jesus and not in that particular temptation that you face. If you carry that Hebrews 12 vision, 
then you'll show grace towards those who sin against you. You'll be willing to show mercy. The church in Corinth had lost this vision of Jesus for their life. And we know this because of the issue that Paul highlights in this passage. This was a church that was full of rivalry, as we read in verse 11. And Paul's response to this rivalry is the content of verse 10, our opening verse. Paul's earnest desire is that they become who they're called to be. He wants unity to exist within this church family. And so he says in the first part of verse 10, Now I urge you, I urge you, there's almost a, a desperation here in Paul's voice. He's pleading with them with all that he is through his apostolic authority that they would get right with God and they would get right with each other. Paul continues, brothers and sisters, he's reminding them that they are family. The spiritual decisions that they make within the life of the church in Corinth will affect the rest of the wider family. He's wanting them to understand this theological significance of being a part of a church. They are family together. And he is pleading with them. And we read, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul's reminding them here that their foundation is the gospel. The challenge that he is about to bring to them is in light of the fact that they're in Christ. And they're in Christ because Jesus has died for them. Jesus has rescued them from their sin. And so this is their lens. Everything they see and everything they do within the life of the church has to come through this lens of the fact that Jesus has died for them. And Jesus has released them from sin because of his resurrection from the dead. And then Paul challenges them to do three things in verse 10. In the second part of verse 10, we read Paul urging them to be in a place that all of you agree in what you say. Every single one of you agree in what you say. Then in the third part of verse 10, that there be no divisions among you. Now it's important to note that when Paul is addressing the issue of divisions here, He's not referring to definite and distinct groups within the church in Corinth, but rather a division of opinion about who is the most important leader. Then in the final part of verse 10, Paul says, And that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. So Paul is not challenging them here towards uniformity. He's not saying here that everyone has to agree about absolutely everything on every issue and situation that the church faces. It's not uniformity. Instead, Paul is challenging them towards a unity with a tough outer shell, a unity that's open to the different opinions, and it's open to disagreement, a unity that's rooted in the gospel, a unity that, as we've already looked at from Hebrews 12, carries this bigger vision of God, one that says, yes, okay, we disagree on this matter or in that matter, but praise God, we are one in Christ. Jesus has died for us. Jesus has risen from the dead. Because of this, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the unity that Paul is focusing on as he writes to the church in Corinth. And so may the words of Paul to Corinth be the word of God to us as a church family. You know, Paul could easily write to us, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters at Denison Baptist Church, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. So let these words from Scripture be a beautiful and a powerful picture of who we are as a church family.
Paul then goes on to highlight the issue that's at play here, uh, starting in verse 11. We read in verse 11, For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. And Paul goes on to unpack what this rivalry looks like in verse 12. So he writes, What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter, by the way, or I belong to Christ. Paul recognises there's division within this church. And there's a couple of things for us to highlight here from verse 12. First off, we don't know the theological position of those who said they belong to Christ. But Paul clearly had an issue with this. What we can say is that they most likely felt that they had a special relationship with Jesus that was different from other brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, I belong to Christ in a way that you don't. This is what Paul's getting at when he challenges those who say, I belong to Christ. And secondly, the Corinthians were arguing for a certain leader as being more prominent or more important. So alongside all of this, the fact that some within the church in Corinth would say that they belong to Paul would point to the fact that there was others within the church family who didn't, who wasn't, who weren't on Paul's side. They disagreed with certain positions that Paul held. They were opposed to Paul within the church in Corinth. And so this is not something that Paul is dealing with from afar. This is, this is deeply personal to Paul. This cuts right into Paul's ministry and mission. Paul is deeply affected by what is happening because people are choosing to oppose him, to be against him, in spite of the fact that he was the one who planted this church. There's this earthly focus on leaders and it resulted in God being so much smaller. They had lost this bigger vision of Christ and they focused on one or two individuals who they saw as being more important. The reality is, for each one of us this morning, when you lose sight of God in your life, the result will be division. You'll experience division in your family. You'll experience division amongst friends. We will experience division within this church the moment we choose to lose sight of God and what he has done for us. If there's division in DBC, it's because we've lost sight of Hebrews chapter 12. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. So let's pray. Let's continue to pray for the unity of the church, that we would constantly fix our eyes upon Christ. How often do you pray for Denison Baptist Church that we would be united, we would be one? The church that moves forward, that grows, that sees the advancement of the gospel, is the church that is united, the church that is one. The reality is, how can you gossip about someone if you're meditating on Jesus' death for you? How can you do it? It's impossible. If you're giving God thanks for the fact that he has died for you, it's impossible for you to then gossip about this person or that person. How can you exclude someone? How can you turn your back on someone if you're thanking Jesus for his blessings within your life? The evidence of his grace in the situations that you face. How can you idolise a human leader and worship Jesus as your saviour at the same time? It's a spiritual impossibility. It's an either or. You either idolise a person or you worship Jesus. We're either in Christ 
and united as a body or outside of that we're focusing on a person and divided as a church family. Every single day is an opportunity for us to put Jesus first and as we put Jesus first, as we carry this vision in our lives, it's a step towards unity. We don't do this in a moment, it's a process. Every single day, choosing to put Christ first. Tim Chester and Steve Timmis in their book Total Church uh, share this about what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. Um, and the words will be the up on the screen. It's such a powerful quote that I just want to share it with us and for us to read this together. So Chester and Timmis write this, I am not autonomous. I am a person in community. I cannot be who I am without regard to other people. By becoming a Christian, I belong to God and I belong to my brothers and sisters. It is not that I belong to God and then make a decision to join a local church. My being in Christ means being in Christ with those others who are in Christ. This is my identity. This is our identity. To fail to live out our corporate identity in Christ is analogous to the act of adultery. We can be Christian and do it, but it is not what Christians should do. The loyalties of the new community supersede even the loyalties of biology. Matthew 10, 34-37, Mark 3, 31-35, Luke chapter 11, 27-28. If the church is a body of Christ, then we should not live as disembodied Christians. We are called to be one, not to be disembodied individuals, but to be one in Christ. What a challenge for us as we think of this passage and as we apply it to our life. And Paul goes on to share just how insane this position is from the church in Corinth. In verse 13, he writes these words, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised in Paul's name? He's just kind of highlighting just how illogical it is. Paul's challenge here is follow your position towards its logical conclusion. He's basically saying to them, if you're all about Paul or Apollos or Cephas, then did any of these men die for you? Are you going to get baptised in the name of the great Apostle Paul? When you get to the end of your life, you're not going to stand before the throne and give an account to Apollos. It's going to be towards your risen saviour, Jesus, the one whose eyes are like fire. So the message this morning is a really simple one. Do not do as the Corinthians did. Strive for unity by keeping your eyes on Jesus, the one who is the author, the one who is the perfecter of your faith. In light of what we're getting at this morning, I want to just ask two questions of ourselves. And as we ask these questions, may it be a challenge to us as we think of what God's word says and as we apply it to our different situations and to our context. And the first question, which will be up on the screen, uh, is this. How am I cultivating a fresh vision of God in my life? How am I cultivating a fresh vision of God? Going back to what we've looked at, if we are united, it's because of the vision that we have. So how are we cultivating this vision? God gives us moments every day to stop and to reflect upon who he is. To be still, to know that he is God. Are you making the most of those moments 
in your life? Do you sing to God? It doesn't matter if you're a rubbish singer. God wants us to praise him and to rejoice. Do you sing to him daily? Do you, do you rejoice in the Lord always? Do you praise him for who he is? Do you thank him for all the blessings that he gives to you? The things that you experience day to day in your life, the provision that he has given to you. Are you recognising God in those moments? And recognising that apart from God you can do nothing in your life? Do you thank him also for the challenges that you face? The trials, the difficulties, the hardships? These are opportunities and they are blessings from God because they mean that we trust in God in those different seasons. These are all different ways that we can cultivate a bigger vision of God in our life. Something else you can do is to read about how great God is. Take a moment to read Isaiah chapter 6 and breathe it in. Reflect on the greatness of God. This is the one to whom we will stand before one day and give an account. So it will be up on the screen, but I want us just to take a moment to really carry a biblical vision of who God is. And this is something we find in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. That's, that's an incredible vision that God gives us in his word. And in many ways, in a good way, that is a, that is a scary vision that God gives us. It gives us a healthy perspective of just how big God is and how small we are. May it be a vision that we carry in the midst of all the different situations that we face day to day. Let that vision of God and his greatness captivate your heart. Something you can maybe do is, is begin your day by reading Isaiah 6 and carrying that vision in your mind and in your heart as you go about your day. Or read the book of Revelation. There are many pictures in Revelation that point to the throne of God and point to God's greatness. And they really remind us just how insignificant and how unworthy each one of us is. So number one, how am I cultivating a fresh vision of God in my life? And number two, what are the areas of my life in competition with this vision? What are the areas that cause me to lose sight of God and cause me to focus on these particular things? What do I find myself thinking about? What do I find myself meditating on? What do I daydream about? Am I daydreaming about God? Am I reflecting on his goodness and his mercy? Or am I daydreaming about just choose your idol? Choose whatever it is that causes you to be passionate and to be excited. What are the interests, hobbies, pursuits, sports that can become God to me in my life? Compare the number of hours you spend on these things to the number of hours that you spend 
reflecting and meditating upon God, upon who he is, upon what he has done for you. You know, when it comes to an interest in the pursuit of God, which one comes first? Which one is priority? Is there opportunity for you in the midst of his hobbies and interests to put God at the very centre of these things? To see these things as a moment, as a season from which you can worship God in? What are the areas of your life in competition with this vision? You know, we're emphasising vision here because a vision of God will result in Christ-centred unity, the opposite of the church in Corinth. And so is this what you want for yourself and for the church family at Denison Baptist? When we have that unity, we will see God at work in great might and in great power. A few weeks ago at our church business meeting, I began our time together by sharing from the book of Acts and how our unity in Christ resulted in, a, in an effective and powerful witness within the community that they were a part of. And we read these words in Acts chapter 4 uh, in verses 32 to 33. It just speaks of a unity that existed in the early church. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own but instead they held everything in common. And we see the result of this. With great power, the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was in all of them. This unity, this foundation of unity, resulted in great power. It resulted in lives being transformed. People choosing to put their faith and trust in Christ. I wonder this morning... How much are we desiring to, to pursue that vision in our lives? Do we long to have that kind of unity within Denison Baptist? This unity in our lives results in the power of God through our lives, which will lead to this community being completely transformed. And the result is many will know and love Jesus. They will come to a saving faith in Christ. So may, may it be so at Denison Baptist Church. May our vision of who God is result in our unity for one another. And may this unity for each other result in the power of God at work, both individually and together as a family. May our community be transformed. Jesus says so himself in John 13, 35. By this, by this unity, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's pray together and respond in a time of worship. Lord, we do thank you for the gift of your word and we thank you, Lord, that you are able to take your word and to challenge us about who it is you call us to be. And Lord, I pray that if there is anything that was not of you from what has been shared, that you would remove that. And Lord, the things that you want to say to us you would remain within us and that you would use these things, these words, these challenges to speak to us and to bring us to a greater and deeper and more loving relationship with you. And Lord, that that might result in many people in our spheres coming to a living faith in you. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together today and that we can pray. And Lord, we pray that you would use this time to minister to us. And as we sing together, 
that this would be a time of unity and love, with an awareness of who you are, with a vision of Hebrews 12, rejoicing in your death for us, rejoicing in your resurrection from the dead. We thank you, Jesus, for your gift. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.